The rest of us will be in Luke chapter 13. I want to invite you to turn in your smartphone or your Bible, just in case you brought a Bible. Luke chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 22 through 35. Ian McConnell and his air station crew were summoned at 4 a.m., to their um, Coast Guard Center in Mobile, Mobile, Alabama. Their job was to keep five helicopters flying 24-7 on rescue missions for Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. The first airborne relief teams arrived before any news crews had arrived on the scene, and they were not prepared for what they would see. One of the first things they noticed that there was a train track running parallel to the ocean that had been moved off of its bed, uh, sand bed, off of, uh, and it had been moved about 15 feet. This whole long section of railroad moved by the ocean. A houseboat was floating down U.S. Highway 90. The entire city of New Orleans was underwater. This was amazing. The helicopters got right to work, airlifting stranded people from their rooftops and from upper floor windows, and then uh, delivering them to the Superdome uh, on the helipad. In an interview, um, Ian McConnell went on to say that the rescue attempts had stalled. He says, our first three missions, we saved the lives of 89 people, three dogs and one cat. On our fourth mission, to our great frustration, we saved no one. But it wasn't for a lack of trying. Some people told us simply to bring food and water. We warned them, you are trying to live in unhealthy conditions and the water will stay high for a long time. Still, they refused. McConnell states, I felt frustrated and angry. We used up precious time and fuel and put ourselves at risk during each rescue attempt. He said, I felt like they were ungrateful. But in truth, they did not know how desperate their situation was. This is the same this is true today for the church. When we have the responsibility to rescue people from hell, some people just refuse. They're not interested. Some people just don't understand how desperate their situation is. This is true in Jesus' day as well. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke 13. And we're going to look at this first section in verses 22 through 34. In verse 22, uh, Luke records, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. 
But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out, people will come from the east and west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, they are those who are last, who will be first, and first who will be last. So let's have a look at this. Verses 22 through 30, the narrow way of salvation. And let's uh, be reminded of the setting. Um, by the way, if clear back in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, Luke records, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Since that time, Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been headed for Jerusalem for the very last time in his life. And Luke devotes a lot of, the, of the, his entire book to those last weeks of Jesus' life. Jesus has been moving toward the end. And um, in Luke chapter 12, just a, a few weeks back, Jesus taught people to be ready for the day of his return. We talked about the second coming. We talked about Jesus coming again. And uh, he, he is letting people know this is, this is a part of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Along with that, there is a time of judgment to come. And when Jesus is re returns, this will be an unexpected time. Some will be ready and be rewarded. Some will not be ready, and they will face final judgment. In chapter 13, he taught about how disaster is just like impending judgment. And he invites people to turn back to him, to, to repent. So now we come to Luke 13, verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. He is headed for Jerusalem. You know, his headquarters was up in the north around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he often went back to Capernaum, and he did a, a vast amount of ministry around the Sea of Galilee up in the north. Let's see the map. And so, uh, by the way, the dotted line is not an exacting route that Jesus took. But the idea is it wasn't a straight route. He is going from town to town, and he is headed to Jerusalem. We don't know where he is on this occasion. Verse 23, the question comes up. Someone asked, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? By the way, how would you answer that? How would you answer that question? Are only a few people going to be saved? Now, this is a really good question. And um, it may have come up for a number of reasons in Jesus' presence at his audience. Uh, for, for example, the rabbis sometimes debated this in the first century. Did they think a lot of people would be in the kingdom or did they think a few people would be in the kingdom? And there was different rationale for each. 
Um, also, thinking about this, the audience. If they, some of those people have, uh, you know, Jesus has come on the scene and he's, he's proclaimed, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And some of those people probably began to search more and more in the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament say about Messiah, about the Christ, the one who's to come? And he's going to come and he's going to be a great victor and he's going to bring judgment and he's going he's to bring in a wonderful kingdom in, the, in Israel. How exciting. But it's not going that well all the time. There are a lot of people who like Jesus, but there's a whole lot of people who don't like Jesus. And the amazing thing, the religious leaders who know the, know, know the most about the Old Testament aren't getting it. Good question. Are there many? Are there few? Who's going to be saved? Verses 23 and 24, the invitation, Jesus doesn't answer directly, as he often was often the case, but he answers personally. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter it and not be able to. Jesus isn't concerned about the number, whether there'll be many or whether there'll be a few. But he focuses on his audience. He says, make every effort. You make every effort. And it's plural. You make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Why? Because many will try to enter the kingdom another way other than the narrow door, and will be denied access. What did Jesus mean by the narrow door? In uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, he said this in a similar situation, enter through the narrow gate, and in Luke it's a narrow door, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate. And broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through, enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. There is a narrow gate, a narrow door, a narrow road, a narrow way, and Jesus is that narrow way, that narrow door. Um, John chapter 10, verse 7. By the way, in the gospel of John, there are seven I am statements where Jesus uses metaphors to teach something about himself. Here's an example. Uh, Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. And he uses this metaphor of a sheep pen and an entrance And there is a gate required for the sheep to enter. And Jesus says, I am that gate. And nobody enters, no sheep enter unless they go through me. That's Jesus' point here. And the sheep pen is a reference to the kingdom of God, is to those who receive Jesus and his message and follow him. Uh, the, The next passage, John 10 Next slide, Uh, John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, Jesus was very explicit. I think it's John, do we have a John 10, 9? 
before that one? We do not have John 10, 9. Okay. So in John 14, 6, Jesus claims, by the way, I'll read John 10, 9 to you. It says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. There we go. Thank you very much. He is the gate, and he says, whoever enters through me, because he's the gate, will be saved. And so he makes this reference now. It's definitely a spiritual reference. It's definitely an eternal reference. It's about life or death. And Jesus is the access to eternal life. And in that John 14, 6, really well-known passage, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's very explicit. He announces that he is the way. It's an exclusive way. There is not another way. And no one can have access to the Father. No one has access to the kingdom of God. No one has access to heaven apart from Jesus. Um, and when you think about this, if you're honest, it's absolutely true, or it has to be absolutely false. You can't have Jesus be a way, because this is false. There's a whole lot of things that Jesus said then would be false, and that he would not be worth following, and it would not be true, and you could not trust him. In John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He uses another metaphor of the I am statements. He's the bread, and he's saying, if you come to me, you will have spiritual nourishment forever. It's eternal. John 6, 40 says this, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Here's the promise. This is the will of God that everyone who looks to the Son, who, who turns to the Son, who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, shall have eternal life. And Jesus promises to raise them up on the last day. And we call that the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus continues. Now he's going to tell a parable, verses 25 through 27. A parable is a simple story with a spiritual reality, an everyday uh, event in the life of his audience. And um, he has a spiritual truth he wants them to see. Verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and plead, pleading, Sir, open the door for us. In this parable, Jesus is the homeowner. And, and he says, there's a time coming uh, when, when the door is going to be closed and you're going to say, there's going to be people in his audience who are outside and they're going to want to get in. And he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. The key is the homeowner doesn't have a personal relationship with them. The homeowner does not know them. Is not in relationship. 
And um, verse 26, he says, Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. Hey, we were there. I remember, Jesus, when you came to our town. We remember when you healed that sick person. Jesus, we were there. We remember one of your sermons. We know about you. We want to be in your kingdom. Jesus says, I don't know you. Um, I don't know where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And Jesus, the point here is that being around Jesus and his people is not enough. It's about having a personal relationship with Jesus, entering into a knowing relationship. It's about coming to Jesus on his terms. And this is where people get messed up because people want to set their own terms with God on how they want it to work. And, and the great thing about the Bible is God has revealed himself. He's revealed who we are. He's revealed how we have a relationship with him, how we can know him. He's told us about the future. He's told us about where we've come from. He's told us what is right and what is wrong. It's about coming to Jesus on his terms. And specifically, think about this. It was targeted to his audience. We, we, we have to remember that. It was, the, it was the people in the first century that he spoke these words to. And they had, they had been around him. And there's a time coming, and Jesus is um, highly focused. He is passionate because he sees the end coming. He sees that there's an opportunity. The king, kingdom of God is at hand. The king is present in the nation Israel. God has promised he would send his son, the Messiah. And here he is. And time is running out because he is going to leave this place. And there is a judgment coming on this nation. And it came in 70 AD, to be really clear. It was a judgment. It wasn't a final judgment. They had this opportunity to recognize Jesus and to welcome him. And a few did, and many did not. And God brought a judgment on his own people in 70 AD under the Roman general Titus, and Jerusalem was decimated. Now, God is not done with these people, and he still has promises for them. When you think about this for us, it's not about just going to church. It's not just being around nice Christians. It's not about contributing to good causes. It's not about having Christian parents or Christian brothers or Christian sisters. It's about each person entering the door on God's terms. Now, I find this quite interesting as an application to our day because I have been amazed. I've been in pastoral ministry 36 years. I have been amazed to watch the millennials grow up, live in Christian homes, 
And I've been so surprised about the number of millennials who reject the church and they reject relationship with God today. But there was a time, and they, they grew up, many of these grew up in evangelical homes. By that I mean they grew up where there was a high view of God, a high view of Scripture, a high view of the gospel, things that we are really comfortable with. And yet somehow, hanging around all of that, they grew up and it doesn't make sense to them today. I don't know what happened. But this is a great reminder. Every person is responsible for themselves. Every person has to enter through the narrow door. Questions I sometimes ask people, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven and meet Jesus? If you were to die tonight, do you know the answer to that question? Do you know for sure? And then I ask a second question. If you were to die tonight, and I'm going to change it just a minute here. If you were to die tonight, and you went to heaven, and Jesus, the homeowner, was standing at the door, and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What would you say? Because you are responsible for the answer. You are responsible to know what God's terms are. They're really simple. For by grace are you saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's something to be received. Do you know that? Do you know what it is you need to receive? Jesus continues, verses 28 through 30, the teaching. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That does not sound like fun. This is a picture of extreme grief and anguish over the mistaken choice of not entering the narrow door. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. There will be great pain and distress. And then, you know, think of his audience first century Jewish audience in the nation of Israel, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, he's taking them to a future time. And he's saying, in this future time, there's going to be a place for judgment and sorrow. There's going to be a place in the kingdom of God. And God's people are going to be in that kingdom. And Abraham, our great hero, and Isaac and Jacob, our heroes, and the prophets, our heroes, they're going to be there. And there's even this sense that you're going to see them and know that, he's saying to his audience. Then he says to them, but you yourselves will be thrown out because they did not enter the narrow door. Verse 29 and 30, people will come from the east and west and north and south. Now, this is going to be a great surprise. This is huge first century Israel. Why? Because the Jewish assumption, if you grew up in Israel in the first century, the Jewish assumption was, we are God's people. We are first. We are first and most important in every situation. And yeah, the, this focuses mostly on the religious group, and that was mostly Israel. And yes, there were some bad sinners in Israel, and 
They were looked down upon by the religious. But generally speaking, the Jews saw themselves as number one. God chose them. God blessed them. He gave them the land. He gave them scriptures. And he promised the Messiah. And now Jesus is saying, there's going to be people come into this kingdom. They're going to come from the east, Asia. They're going to come from the west, Europe. Even Romans are going to get in. They're going to come from the north. There's going to be Eskimos in the heaven. They're going to come from the south, Africans, South Americans. And they will take place, their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. These people are people who will enter the narrow door. They're going to know about Jesus. They're going to have a relationship with him. And they're going to be saved from the penalty of their sins. Verse 30, indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. And Jesus is saying to his audience, you think these Gentiles are the worst thing that ever happened. They're going to be first and you're going to be last. And that will be a surprise. The kingdom has a different set of values than our world. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. God values things like humility and kindness and service more than he values power and strength and wealth. That's what our world values. Kingdom values are upside down. The first will be last and the last will be first. Verses 31 through 35, the heavy heart for a city. Jesus is headed for Jerusalem, and he's headed there to die. His days are numbered. Very clearly, they are numbered by God, because God has a plan, and Jesus is following it in every detail. Verse 31, we see the malicious advice. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Now, sort of sounds like maybe words of concern. You know, the Pharisees are worried about Jesus. You know, Herod wants to kill you, Jesus. You better leave. Maybe they're concerned, but maybe not. This is a way of getting Jesus out of their city. It's a way of getting Jesus out of their hair. They're trying to manipulate Jesus out of fear, out of fear for his own life. Verses 32 through 33, the judicious rebuke. Jesus gives a rebuke. He replied, go tell this fox, referring to Herod. Um, it's one of the few times that Jesus seems to be, other than speaking to the Pharisees, he seems to be rather negative. Go tell that fox. You know, calling somebody a fox is, is a reference to their being cunning and scheming in their tactics like a fox. And, he, and here's what Jesus says. I will keep on driving out demons and he, healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. Jesus says, I have a mission. The Father has sent me to do his will. And I'm going to do it today. I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to do it until it is completely done, until I reach my goal. And what is his mission to drive out demons, to set the captives free. 
to proclaim the good news, to heal the sick, to announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's what he's going to continue to do day after day after day, one day at a time. Verse 33, in any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. And so Jesus makes a reference to the history of Israel because God would send prophets to, to his own nation to speak to them when they got off of course. He'd given them instructions in the Old Testament. We call it the law. And when God's people would stray away from that, God would send prophets to call them on the carpet. You need to do this. You need to repent. You need to come back here. You need to take care of the poor. You need to treat people justly. And, he, and prophets would, would seek to get their attention. God's people often ignored them. And sadly, they even killed some of the prophets. For example, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament is Isaiah. And history records that he was sawn in two by the king of Israel in Jerusalem. That's uh, not a very good record. There were other prophets who died in the city. And so Jesus makes that reference. I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. By the way, Jesus is a prophet. In fact, he is the prophet that Moses recognized in Deuteronomy 18. And God would say, I'm sending the prophet. It's a specific person. And you are to listen to what he says and follow his instructions very clearly. Go back and read Deuteronomy 18. It's right around verse 15, I think. Um, and now we come to verses 34 and 35, the lamentable future. Jesus continues, verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as the hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You who kill the prophets, people God's sent to you to speak for him, and you didn't listen. And now Jesus is speaking as, as God himself. How I've longed to gather you. How his heart is, is to reach these people and help them understand. And he uses this uh, figure of speech as a hen gathers her chicks, as a hen who is protective, who, who wants to keep her chicks from harm. She has experience. She knows about bad weather and storms and danger. She knows when to protect. And Jesus says, that's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to do for you. And you were not willing to pay attention. Your heart wasn't open. You weren't soft to the true and living God. And then he says in verse 35, Look, your house is left to you desolate. Some refer to the house as the city of Jerusalem. The house 
may well, and this is what I would take to be, refers to the temple in Jerusalem, the house of God, where uh, God was to be worshipped, where sacrifices took place, where the priest went before God. Jesus says, look, your house, your temple in Jerusalem is left desolate. Jesus looks into the future. I think he sees 70 AD coming. And the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And this was a massive structure. And the stones were magnificent to put this together. They were very large, granite, heavy. The Romans uh, were so motivated about stamping out this group of people, they overturned every stone of the temple, every stone, and hauled them off to the Kidron Valley. Your house is left desolate, Jesus says. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that was a phrase used when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday riding on a donkey. But the people who welcomed him there were people who were for Jesus. Jerusalem, the nation are rejecting Jesus. And there is a time coming in the future when they will welcome Jesus. And this, I think, is um, when he comes again a second time. They're going to be the Jewish nation. Go back to Romans chapter 11. There's a time coming when the Jewish nation will embrace Jesus. But not yet. And I think Jesus is referring to this. There's a time where they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But right now, they don't get it. They don't see it. How important is Jerusalem? Now, we looked at this passage last week, but let's look at it one more time. Revelation 21. John, the writer, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, And there was no longer any sea. This is after Jesus comes back again in Revelation chapter 19. He comes in Revelation 19 and he brings judgment on earth. And Revelation 20 speaks of a final judgment. And then there's a new creation. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This piece of geography is still important to God for some reason. He has picked this city, and it will be the centerpiece of his coming kingdom, the kingdom that is not yet, but the kingdom is coming, and you can count on it, and it's for sure. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. This is when the kingdom of God meets the earth. Jesus prayed for the coming kingdom. Remember that? Thy kingdom come. Your kingdom come coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Next slide. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And this will be an eternal kingdom, and it will last forever. No more tears, no more death, no more dying, no more pain, no more suffering. God is working right now. The kingdom of God is present because Jesus is reigning 
through his people. He's, at least some of his people are responding to him and submissive to him and, and seeking to do his will. But the kingdom of God is not yet what it will be. The invitation for us is for now. John eleven twenty five 25 through 27 says this. And Jesus is speaking to Martha at the tomb of her brother Lazarus. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this was uh, probably really hard for her to understand because he hadn't died yet and he hadn't been raised again. And so this whole resurrection thing was like really new. But looking back, the disciples get this. So many things made sense to them looking back. And we, we, we have the whole story, Genesis through Revelation. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. That's the invitation. That's the narrow door. That's what Jesus invites every person to enter. Every person. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. I intend to face physical death at some point. But that's not all there is. There's a life after that as well. Eternal life doesn't start when I die. Eternal life begins when I believe. It's a new spiritual dimension. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. That's eternal life. And he says to Martha, do you, do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. She gets it. She understands the narrow door. Question for us is, do you get it? Do you understand how to have a personal relationship with God? Do you understand how to enter the narrow door? And it's very simple. Who do you believe that what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you believe that he was? Um, do you think Jesus is a good moral teacher? Some people highly value Jesus as a good moral teacher, but maybe not much more than that. That he was an important religious leader? He was an important religious leader. Is that all he was? Was he just a figment of the disciples' imagination? Because there are a lot of people who think this was all made up in the second century after Jesus, years and years after Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? Is he God's son? The one that the Father sent to rescue people from hell. Question is, do you need to be rescued? Do you know how serious the issue is? Some people don't think they need to be rescued. Some people don't understand. And church, here's what I want to say to you. People don't know. That's why they need you in their lives to know about who Jesus is and how significant it is to be rescued. And there are consequences for not being rescued. The deal is we deserve eternal death because of our sin. Wages of sin is death. The truth is, Jesus died for us. He took our penalty on himself, and he is the narrow door, the narrow way, and he invites us to trust him, to believe what God said about his son. 
We cannot rescue ourselves no matter how hard we try. We will never be good enough. Only Jesus Christ can deliver us from the wrath to come. In Acts 16, um, Philippian jailers said to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied back, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be safe. And that's the issue. Can you trust that for yourself? Um, just as uh, we close today, I want to give an opportunity. If there's anybody here who has never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, I'd like to give you that opportunity today simply by um, having a prayer. And a prayer is, is it's not magical. It's not like these special words. It's just a way to express our faith. It's a way to express our belief in Jesus. And you can do that wherever you are. You can do it at home. You can do it riding the car. You can do it here this morning. So I want to say a prayer. I'll say it two times. The first time, just so you can understand it. And the second time is if, if that made sense to you, I'd like you to pray it seriously, okay? So the first time, uh, if everybody look up here, you don't have to bow your head. Uh, the, uh, prayer like this. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I understand that you sent Jesus to be my Savior, that he died on the cross and that he paid the penalty for my sin. I trust him right now to save me. And I want to ask Jesus into my life. I want to ask him to help me to be the person he wants me to be. It, it can be that simple. He wants you to learn to follow him. But it begins with that relationship. The way you begin the relationship is putting your trust in him. Okay? I want to pray it the second time. If that made sense to you, if that expresses desire of your heart, I want, I want you to pray along with me silently and uh, you talk to God. It's your prayer. Let's all bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I understand that you sent Jesus to be my Savior. Thank you that he died on the cross and he paid the penalty for my sin. I trust him right now to save me from that sin penalty. And Father, I want to ask that Jesus come into my life and that he help me to be the person that he wants me to be. With everybody's head still bad, if you prayed that prayer, would you just slip up your hand so I can see your hand? If you prayed along with me, just slip up your hand so I can see it. Okay, thank you. You can put your hands down. Father, I thank you for those who um, just indicated this morning about expressing their faith in Jesus. And um, God, may they sense your presence right now. May they sense that they have been given eternal life. May they sense um, your presence to help them be the people that you want them to be. And then, Father, uh, for us as a church, Lord, remind us of how important this is and how serious this is and how important it is that we Help other people connect with you. How we represent Jesus to other people. How we develop relationships and speak for you.
In Jesus' name I pray, amen.